Hi everybody, this is Pete Worrell, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the Positive Enterprise Value Podcast. Bigelow LLC's website is BigelowLLC.com, where you can find this podcast, and where we freely share immediately useful information with high-performing entrepreneur-owner managers who want to build their enterprise value and possibly create a capital gain someday. For over 30 years, Bigelow has been my professional home, and I've had the fun of meeting with thousands of seasoned successful private business owners and working closely with hundreds of them. I have seen that successfully striving for achievement and ultimately fulfillment leaves clues, kind of like breadcrumbs in the forest that we can follow. So deconstructing the behavior of high-performing EOMs lets us learn a lot about peak performance and optimal experience. In this series of podcasts, I interview seasoned successful entrepreneur-owner managers who are high performers, maybe even peak performers in their niche domains. Why would a super successful Harvard professor, successful researcher, popular teacher, move out of the home he's lived in with his wife and teenage son for 17 years and move into an undergraduate resident hall with 450 undergraduates? Why would he team teach EC10, one of the largest Harvard undergraduate courses, Principles of Economics, along with Jason Furman, the former chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors, why would they set out to rethink and reboot how economics is taught at Harvard? David Lapson was the featured speaker at this year's annual Bigelow Forum held in September 2019. The entrepreneur-owner managers and their spouses who attended raved about Leibson's ability to take uh, theoretical concepts and foundations of behavioral economics and apply them to immediately useful real-world issues. David Leibson is the Robert I. Goldman Professor of Economics and Faculty Dean of Lowell House. He leads Harvard University's Foundation on Human Behavior Initiative. As you'll hear, David is a behavioral economist whose research focuses mostly in behavioral economics with an emphasis on what he calls intertemporal choice. Also, self-regulation, behavioral change, public finance, macroeconomics, and biosocial science. David is an elected member of the Academy of Arts and Sciences and the National Academy of Sciences. He earned his undergraduate degree in economics from, where else, Harvard University, his master's degree in econometrics and mathematical economics, hard to say, from London School of Economics, and his PhD in economics from MIT. I had the fun of digging into some of David's inspirations and motivations and found him to be a scholar who's completely committed to his students, to his scholarship, uh, to his family. David and I uh, recorded this podcast live on September 24th, 2019 at David's beautiful residence, which is located at Lowell House at Harvard University. As always, this podcast is unscripted and unedited. Hope you enjoy it. So here we are Hi. at Lowell House. Glad to be here with you. I'm here with David Labson, uh, who's a professor of economics at Harvard, and we are in his residence, actually, at Lowell House, where, is it fair to say you're the Dean of Lowell House? So the official here? title is Faculty Dean. Faculty Dean. So I have to ask you, um, you know, 
coming out of the Bigelow Forum a couple of weeks ago where you were the featured speaker, we get so much tremendous positive feedback about uh, the, our entrepreneur owner managers really enjoying um, the uh, featured talk you gave and the way you were able to handle questions through it. And they had Thank some you. good questions. Yeah, they were great. I actually I love uh, the feedback. heard uh, two pieces of feedback today. One was from uh, a client who was there and said he enjoyed it. But another one was from someone who at the last moment couldn't attend because of a death in the family. Mm. And he said, I'm so sorry I wasn't able to be at the forum. I particularly wanted to see Professor Labson. What was the answer to that coin th experiment? <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I think he would have been one of the 35% that fell into the, uh, the confidence factor. Thinking about uh, you in mid-career and thinking about you being a uh, an incredibly uh, capable researcher and wonderful teacher and also faculty dean here at the Lowell House. I have to ask you, what in the world would cause you to go after how many ever years you've already been at Harvard to leave your home and move your <laughs> wife and your son into what is, uh, sorry for my vocabulary, but what is in effect a 400 student residence hall? Yeah, a dormitory. So I was Harvard class of 88 and had a wonderful experience when I was around age 20, living in a facility like this, and love the communal spirit and love the interactions and feel that it's kind of natural to come full circle and pay it forward. So it is a little odd, and many of my colleagues look at me um, and wonder what has happened and how I possibly came to this decision, but it, for me it makes perfect sense and indeed it's, I see it as a wonderful opportunity and a privilege to be with the undergraduates here, interacting with them, you know, absorbing their energy, talking with them about their ideas. They're full of surprises, they're full of ideas that were not part of the conversation when we were in school and listening to them reminds me every day why I'm here. And, and uh, did you come from an academic background originally? So no, I, that's an odd twist. My plan when I got to college had no academic path whatsoever in it. I was going to do the natural things that people think about as they arrive in college. Nothing like being a professor was even on my mind. I wasn't even vaguely aware that that was a thing that... I might do, and if you'd asked me and said, well, you know, there is the possibility of being a professor, I would have said, well, other people do that, that's not for me. And indeed, it took four years to come around and suddenly realize that that was exactly what I wanted to do with my life. It, it was so alien when I was first here that I would have rejected it out of hand if you'd offered it to me. And can you say more about, so that was exactly what I wanted to do with my life. Tell me, give me some whys about that. So the life of a professor has a lot of wonderful and a lot of terrible things. And for the person who really loves those wonderful things and doesn't mind those terrible things, it's, it's a charmed existence. So the wonderful things are you get to reinvent yourself every day. You get to pick your own path. You get to explore. You get to change. You get to grow rather than becoming... Um, a good, a skilled person in one domain. You get to decide every week what you want to do that's different. 
and you have the freedom and the flexibility and the tenure to go and make those explorations. You also are constantly on the frontier of knowledge. That's a lot of fun. You have the permission to dig very deeply into a topic. So you, you know, in many careers, it's sort of 80-20. You have to get, to get to the answer and move on. As a professor, if you want to spend a decade digging very deeply into something, you have permission to do that. So those are the wonderful things. The terrible thing is it's sort of a seven day a week job. You, because you love it, you never let it go. And, sure. and everyone around you is the same way. So it's a very intense career. You're very committed. You're in a community of very committed people. And if someone wants nine to five, they're not gonna feel really at home as a faculty member. And, and uh, your, your parents, uh, they were not uh, academic uh, professionals. So my father is a physician and had an academic affiliation with medical school, yeah. but that wasn't his identity. I mean, he was, he was a surgeon, that was what he did every single day of the week, every hour of the day. The fact that he had that affiliation yeah. with Jefferson Medical School oh, yeah. was, was really peripheral. And indeed, only later in life that I realized that there was this kind of splinter of academic identity in him. Uh, what he did, Did though, he teach? He, so he did teach in a way. And, yeah. and I think it was that aspect that maybe I absorbed as a, as a kid he trained other physicians in his practice. So he had what they called fellows. And these were very accomplished young surgeons who had already been through medical school and a residency and were now joining him in his practice for a year or two to take their surgical skills to another level. Yes. And, and, that, and through that, I saw a love for teaching in his career that probably influenced me because even though he wasn't a classroom teacher and even though there wasn't a textbook or a curriculum, he was very much committed with taking these physicians who were typically, let's say 30 or 35 years old and turning them into the best surgeons in the world. And that I think was very meaningful for him and I understood that. And is he still doing that? No, he's uh, 85 years old, yeah. and uh, he's, he's a very happy, healthy um, father of, of mine, uh, but he's no longer a practicing surgeon, and probably that's a good thing. Uh, 85 would be an advanced age to be in the, lab, in, in the um, operating room. It really would be, yeah. Uh, repairing eyeballs. Yeah, right. So um, if I have the... Uh, how your career unrolled. Uh, you uh, came to Harvard as an undergrad, and uh, I think you uh, were at the London School for your master's degree. And uh, you have your PhD from MIT. What was your first job coming out of your PhD program? So first thing I did was come here to Harvard. I was an assistant professor, and it was a fantastic environment because I was doing something that was pretty controversial and many economics departments looked askance at it, but not Harvard. So Harvard was an early fan of behavioral economics. Indeed, I was the first person to go on the academic market as a behavioral economist with a 
dissertation that was in this new field. So what year would that have been? 1994. Okay. So the field existed already, but it was, it was research undertaken by people who had started somewhere else in their careers. Yes. And, and it was very controversial in the 1980s and 1990s. Most economists viewed behavioral economics as something that was anathema, a deviation, a mistake. Uh, and some of the earliest pioneers really had to fight for a big chunk of their careers to earn the respect of their colleagues. So I'm very grateful to Harvard for taking that risk and hiring someone in this field right out of graduate school. I, th I think it was, uh, I, I think of the, the, the birth of uh, behavioral economics just as a practitioner from being about the mid 90s. And I think that was because Thaler was beginning to publish and others are beginning to publish specific, not just academic texts, but actually taking some of the foundational theories and applying them around then. And do I have it right? Do yeah, you remember? that's exactly uh, right. Would, yeah. uh, so a colleague of yours, Richard Zeckhauser, began to have some behavioral finance conferences. And I could be wrong, but I think they may have started right around that time frame. Does that make sense to you? Exactly, yeah. So in the 80s, it was all in the wilderness. It was all radical and mostly laboratory experiments. There was very little work being done in the field. But by the mid-90s, people were starting to realize this was not just a academic topic. It was a topic with practical teeth. And suddenly there was this outpouring that, as you say, starts in the mid-1990s and really accelerates in the 2000s, yes. where all of these ideas suddenly come to the attention of firms and governments and NGOs, and what was previously an academic exercise becomes something with enormous practical import. So, given your academic background and given that here you are as the faculty dean of Lowell House, do you think about how to try to bring the behavioral aspect into your teaching of your students, both in and out of the classroom? Absolutely. I mean, that's my mission. So, so, so what are some examples of that? So I'm constantly asking my students to think both like a traditional economist, which means everyone's optimal and rational, but also to think like a behavioral economist, which is a world in which there are all of these subtle deviations from rationality. And if they can master both the benchmark of rationality and the pragmatics of imperfect rationality, they're going to make much better decisions and they'll build much better institutions. And so I want them, on the one hand, to understand how to be rational so they can make excellent decisions. But on the other hand, I want them to understand human imperfections because if they're going to build institutions for other people, they better not assume that everyone around them is also perfectly rational. And to understand the behavior of others, we have to understand that it's one part motives that are implemented with rational elements and one part psychological ingredients that cause people to sometimes act in ways that are self-defeating. And when we see the full person with all of those ingredients, we're much better able to predict their behavior and to help them make better choices. Yeah, but uh, I think as a practitioner myself, uh, I might challenge you on how you frame that because 
you framed it as uh, people have these rational sides and then they have these behavioral impulses. Uh, what I see, and now, as you know, the vast majority of my time is spent with owners, business owners. What I see is just the, uh, that is the obverse of that, that they are uh, largely dictated by their emotions. And I say this with great affection, and I am one also. And you know, maybe some of those emotions are actually chemical, but they, they're largely affected by that. And once in a while, you know, in the words of Jonathan Haidt, once in a while they get that under control and they make a little rational injection into the emotional decision they're gonna make. I just wonder how you respond to that. Yeah, so it's hard to decompose human behavior into a fraction that's rational, a fraction of choices that are rational. And I agree with you that there are some settings where we should mostly assume people are confused and making bad choices, but there's other settings where people are systematically making very sophisticated choices. I think a lot of it has to do with experience. So if I take someone who's entering a novel environment, they're gonna be abysmal at it. So imagine someone who's never learned the rules of poker. I now explain them the rules of poker and I have them sit at a table with five experienced poker players. We know how that's gonna go. Right. It's gonna be <laughs> a massacre. Uh, but that same person who doesn't know how to play poker well, if they keep playing for two years, they're going to be great in all likelihood. So that person will go from being absolutely incapable to being an expert if they put in lots of time. And I think a lot of human behavior can be described that way. The inexperienced person, even if they're brilliant, I mean, you could take a genius teach them the rules of poker and they're still gonna lose every hand or misplay every hand. Uh, or you can take someone who's actually not a genius and give them five years of experience playing poker and they'll play brilliantly. So I think so much of our capabilities come from this process of learning. And I think we make the terrible mistake often of thinking that just because we're smart in some abstract sense, we're going to be good at everything we do, not realizing that we're going to be good at what we do with experience and we're going to be bad at what we do as novices. Yeah. I mean, I will see you and raise you on that. I uh, guess I see so many people who are highly experienced in a fairly narrow domain and who are absolutely brilliant, genius, world-class at what they do, can't be beat in what they do. Uh, that I wonder if there is such a thing as general intelligence. So <laughs> that's, a, that's a deep question. So I'm, I'm happy to agree that it's much more fruitful to think about domain-specific capabilities than it is to think about some general capability. But um, you know, you're, you're now wading into academic debates, which I think are... Um, often counterproductive. We can certainly agree that if we're trying to find someone who's gonna be good at something, the most important thing we should look for is experience. So um, help me understand as you uh, move to Lowell House and here you are starting off, we're recording this in mid-October 2019. Uh, what are some projects, a project or some projects that you're working on right now that are really energizing to you? So that's a, a tough question because I have about 20 projects. So now I have, that to, pick, many. I have to pick one of my, uh, yeah, one or one two. Of my children and uh, tell you about them. Um, so one project that 
I'm finding very exciting and stimulating is the problem of trying to understand the limitations of nudges. So one thing that has happened in the last 20 years is we've been documenting, behavioral economists have been documenting the powerful ways that we can change behavior by changing choice architecture. Right. And there's wonderful examples of that. For example, enrollment in 401ks. If right. you automatically enroll people, they stay in. If you don't automatically enroll them, then only 40% of them opt in during their first year of employment. But it turns out that if you follow those people over time, this enormous gap you see in the first year starts to fade away as you move further and further down the timeline because the people who were not automatically enrolled, many of them eventually do opt in. And some of those who are automatically enrolled, well, some of them eventually cash out. Mm -hmm. And so you see convergence. Now, we'd like to understand this process by which first we can help people make better choices by nudging them in the right direction. And then secondly, how we can create maybe booster shots that sustain the behavior change over the long run and prevent the convergence that seems to be undermining the long run success of some of these short run nudges that have been spectacularly successful when judged at the horizon of months, but then seem to fade away when judged at horizons of years or decades. So this is research that you're working on, this long-term research? Exactly. So we're, we're both trying to understand the ways that these unravelings occur and also trying to understand how to stop the unravelings. So how do we take good behavior or behavior change that has presumably made someone better off and sustain it rather than allowing it to unravel the way so many of the good choices that we make ultimately fall apart. And in your, this kind of research, do uh, your graduate students or undergrads participate in that with you? So the primary collaborators for me are other faculty and then doctoral students and students that have recently graduated from an undergraduate program who we call uh, pre-docs or post-backs. Yep. And they will work with me full-time for a year or two on their way to typically graduate school in economics. So my faculty collaborators include John Beshares and James Choi and Bridget Madrian and many others. And then I have um, doctoral student collaborators at the moment, Chris Clayton and Peter Maxted. And then I have many uh, of these, um, these post-backs who are also um, both working with us, but we hope getting trained and developing their own skills so that when they get to graduate school, they'll be ready to launch their own careers. So I know you're a very successful researcher. I've read some of your research and I like it. But I also saw you uh, two weeks ago uh, relate and resonate with 
a room full of super successful, high-performing entrepreneurs. And it occurred to me, you might consider being an entrepreneur someday. You ever thought about that? Sure. I uh, think about it all the time. There's, there's lots of aspects of entrepreneurship that are very appealing to a behavioral economist. Exactly. Because we're all about trying to help people make choices that improve their well-being. And that means creating some kind of product that is going to make people better off that they'll presumably value and maybe pay for. Now, every time I've contemplated that, however, I've realized that there's so many complexities to actually starting a business that I've shied away and essentially passed whatever ideas I have onto others and said, you run with it. And indeed, whenever folks have, have asked, would you join our business? I've typically said, you know, it's better for me to stay in the academic realm and maybe talk with you, maybe brainstorm together, but I don't have the bandwidth to be an, an entrepreneur because I see it as, as something one doesn't successfully do on the side. Here's our grandfather clock ringing. We're <laughs> in Lowell House. I'm liking it, yeah. Uh, rings 96 times a day. You get used to it uh, on the quarter hour. So, so I think, you know, the really success, as I said a moment ago, I think that, that real expertise comes from doing something a lot. And, and when you think about an academic who comes in and offers an opinion here and there, I think that can give someone an insight. But I think if you're really going to be successful, it's not something you're going to do on a very part-time basis. And I'm not ready to do it on a full-time basis. If you were forced to take a couple of years out to uh, learn a new skill, what would it be? So I think the applied data sciences, especially machine learning, represent a spectacularly exciting realm of human activity, both for the purposes of business, government, and of course, academe. So if someone said, you got to quit economics and the sky's the limit, do whatever you want, but not economics, I think I would focus on machine learning. Very exciting. And I think we're on the precipice of enormous social changes that will come from smart machines. And they don't need to be like humans to transform our world. So I'm not saying there's going to be a robot that is easily confused with a person in 20 years. But I am saying there will be a robot that will be able to take instructions from a human and do all sorts of remarkable things. And that's going to be transformative to our civilization as the nature of work changes, as the available jobs change, as some people find it challenging even to find a job in this environment where their competition is no longer a worker in another country, but a robot which is seven inches tall and is infinitely patient and takes very little energy to move about the world. So uh, I think 
and all of that is the, the downstream of, of machine learning and general AI. These are exciting frontiers for humanity. And if I had no economics to do, I'd love to spend, spend some time digging deeply into the applied and basic science questions that are present there. Yeah, I agree. I think that if you think about the uh, use of technology during our careers so far, really, it's the tip of the iceberg compared to what we're about to see. I just think about uh, the application of machine learning, uh, even in a very simple, uh, you know, think about a uh, general practice physician who, after 30 years, has to be really good at diagnosing uh, very confusing symptoms. And just think if you had a great database with some learning capability, how much better you would be as a physician to be able to use your human physician skills to be able to plan treatment and talk with the patient and not have to be so concerned about, am I getting the diagnosis right? I just think there's just great, great blue sky. Yeah, yeah. radiology will be transformed yes. when we can take millions of of x-rays and related images and train ML systems on that. So you brought up that, um, uh, you know, our unemployment rate is, uh, I don't know what it is in the country, is it 3%? It's in the threes, yeah. Yeah, and um, yet, if you talk to those people who were in the room with you two weeks ago, if you ask them their single largest challenge, they would say it's to get the skilled people to work in their organizations at all levels. And uh, so we have this disconnect, don't we, between what students might be learning in colleges and universities and what employers say they need. So that's certainly true that the typical student entering a university probably doesn't know much about the labor market. However, I do think that there's more and more awareness that what follows college typically is a job and that awareness is propagating back to the courses that students choose. So while you're right, the universities aren't focused on how do I train the workforce of 2030, uh, I think increasingly students are interested in that question and voting with their feet. So if you look at the way majors have evolved over the last 30 years, you see enormous growth in the areas where compensation after college is the highest. And um, I think our our students may be doing this without the faculty's prompting. Whether the faculty need to provide more prompting or not, I don't know. But I'm confident that with or without our prompting, there's a revolution underway in terms of the skills that, in aggregate, students and universities are obtaining. So as you think about that mismatch as I described it, are you um, optimistic? Or are you critical of the higher education environment? How do you feel? So I do think that there's a balance that one wants to strike between training narrowly for a particular job the year after one graduates, which is a mistake. 
because it's very hard to predict what skill will be needed in 25 years. And if you're training for that first job, you're probably mistraining for life. On the other hand, I do think that there's a value in asking, what am I obtaining as a university student? And how will this skill set enable me to live a fulfilling and productive life over the next 50 years? And I encourage students to ask that question. Now, it may be that that leads them to a degree in philosophy, doesn't necessarily lead them to a degree in computer science. And indeed, there's many people who say, the last thing that we need right now is more computer science concentrators because indeed that's exactly what the machines are going to be good at. So, <laughs> so our, our, our short run theory that it's computer science skills, coding skills that people need is quite mistaken. I'm not going to bet on that, you know, take a bet on, on that horse race, but I will say that I think it's healthy for students and universities to ask, what are the skills and capabilities and values that we're picking up as university students and how will they play out over a lifetime of, of work and of ethical choices and of identity for us as humans. And I think asking that big question is exactly what one should be doing in a university or in a college and for too many of our students, that question is never asked. So we think of you as just a terrific thought leader in your domain. Uh, what thought leaders do you follow in either your domain or other domains? That's a good question. So you can yeah. show me the lists of, on your podcast exactly, app. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So. There's a lot of economists that I take inspiration from, not necessarily because I'm always in agreement with them, but, but because I think they have interesting ideas and if interesting perspectives, even when those perspectives may challenge my view and may ultimately lead me into a disagreement, it's still the conversation that, I th that I'll find very stimulating. So um, Larry Summers would be an economist that I make a habit of reading. Um, Paul Krugman would be another economist that I make a habit of reading. And I'm often finding myself not agreeing with Paul, but I'm always stimulated and I'm always uh, forced to, to think more deeply when I read his arguments. So, so I'm... I'm certainly going to follow them on a regular basis. So uh, you've moved here to Lowell House, and um, it requires a big investment, intellectual investment, by you and your family. Um, some people would say, in the end, uh, the meaning of life is centrally tied up with what you do. Do you agree with that, with the kind of work you do? Well, tell me more what you mean by the meaning of life is tied up with the kind of work you do. You mean... No, you don't understand. See, I ask the questions. You <laughs> the <answers>. <laughs> <laughs> well, some people would say that your, your, your uh, personal identity, your sense of purpose, your sense of meaning 
is highly tied up with the, the nature of the work you do. Yeah, sure. I, I, I think, and I tell my students this, I think finding a calling is an incredibly important aspect of living a good life. And if you're lucky, you find a calling. And not everyone does. One can still have a great life without finding a calling, but it's so much easier to have a life of meaning and purpose if along the way you have found a calling. I don't think there's the calling for a person. Uh, when you find a calling, you have an identity, you have a roadmap, and you don't want to follow it too rigidly. I think there's a danger to getting into a, of getting into a rut, but I think that when one wakes up in the morning and there's a natural plan and something you're passionate about, something you care about, something that engages your curiosity, something that energizes you, something you feel good about ethically too. So when you find that thing that animates you and that breathes life into you every day and that makes you stay up too late at night because you're so excited and that hopefully propagates into the world in a good way, um, you know, one can find a calling that is socially destructive. But uh, when you find a calling that is socially beneficial, then I think there's a very high likelihood you have a, you've, you've stumbled onto a good life. And I agree that, that for many university professors, and especially people in a place like this, where you're living communally with 450 other people who share your excitement about ideas, who are passionate to, who are also staying up you know, too late and um, struggling with many of the same questions that you're struggling with, I think it can be extremely fulfilling. And I, I wish everyone you know, the best chance of finding that thing, whether it's their business or th their, the hobby that they really live for or the family connection, something that is their calling. And it doesn't need to absorb most of their day. It can be a social activity or some other leadership position. But when you have a calling, I think, I think you, you tend to be a, a fulfilled human. Yeah, I mean, I think if you find your unique ability or your Anders Ericsson 10,000 hours or uh, Mike Csikszentmihalyi would say flow, right, uh, that you know it, uh, but do you think that there's inevitable uh, trade-off between pursuing your calling and uh, uh, being able to give enough time and attention to your family? Yeah, I think those are tough trade-offs. I agree that there's a danger that your calling becomes toxic because you're so absorbed by it that you ultimately sacrifice too much and family is obviously you know, high on that list of things that tends to get squeezed. And we can all think of colleagues who went down the rabbit hole far, far too deeply and left behind the things that mattered the most. And I, I do think that, um, that there's a real risk, especially 
when there's young children involved that that they don't get the attention they need. So well, that's, that, a, that's uh, a critical trade-off. That, and I think, you know, it's probably axiomatic, but it's almost epidemic among entrepreneurs, right? I mean, that single-mindedness is part of what makes them usually excellent in, the, in their domain, but yet they're very susceptible to going down what you call a rabbit hole. So so you're very, you have a calling, and you're on fire with your professional uh, enthusiasm. How do you um, get refreshed? So you're at Lowell House, you got 450 people around you, you're a giver. I see you giving, 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 you're giving in the classroom, you're giving to your research colleagues. What do you do to get uh, refreshed when you're depleted? So I actually think that, that giving is refreshing. So when I go out into the Lowell community and spend a couple hours with the students in this dormitory, yeah. I, I come back, you know, both exhausted and energized, and and it's a change, but it's um, and and it's an exhausting experience because often the conversations are very intense, but I do find that I feel enlivened and I feel completely alert and and aware, and it's like a a caffeine hit that's more powerful than any quadruple espresso. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm quite refreshed by my community and by all the activities in that community. There's lots and lots of stuff happening here. There's folks coming in and talking, outside speakers, inside speakers, groups of students. But there is one other thing that I, two other things that I think are also very refreshing. So time with my family is always wonderful. There's um, my wife, uh, Nina Zipser, and my son, Max, and, um, and when the three of us are together, that's always an absolute pleasure. And, uh, and then, of course, there's the vacations, which, which are a special category, often exhausting, frankly. Sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, often very physically demanding, very active, tons of jet lag but uh, ultimately things that are remembered and very meaningful. So I'd say, I'd say that, that, that getting refreshed is often being busy with, with, with my community, whether it be economists or students here in Lowell House, or spending some time with my family. It could be a bike ride, it could be a movie, or going traveling the world with them no matter how much jet lag we suffer along the way, those are always happy memories. So uh, the other side of that would be, as you go out into the community, whether it's with students or your colleagues, your family, do you have any kryptonite? Do you have something that causes an ultimate weakness, a loss of strength in you? That's a good question. Kryptonite. Kryptonite. Yeah. So... I think that I, one thing that I've never figured out how to manage well is the chaos of the inbox. So that I would say is a kind of kryptonite for me. You, you sit down at night and you've just had a, a great day and now you've got an hour to solve one more problem, which is your inbox. <laughs> It's hopeless. I don't have an answer. It is, I guess it is my kryptonite because 
I can't get through all the emails and I feel bad about it and I need, and I have people helping me with it too, but it's still, you know, a lot of them require a personal touch. Sure. And, sure. uh, yeah, that be, can be very fatiguing, very exhausting. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's not so much that it's exhausting. It's just, I don't have time. I just, it just, there, there aren't enough hours in the day. And then somehow if I actually wanted to do what I felt was appropriate in my inbox, I'd be spending six hours a day on email, which would destroy me. Or would you more, uh, more, um, I, I don't want to use this word, but ruthlessly to make the point, would you more ruthlessly triage your email? Well, that's what's happening now. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, it's happening by necessity because it's only getting an hour a day. Yeah. And, uh, and I guess that is the one thing that I feel awful about all the emails that I haven't answered. <laughs> so, um, you know, a lot of the listeners to this podcast, David, are super successful entrepreneurs and they're owners and they enjoy listening to how other people have gone through their careers. Um, there is a debate among entrepreneurs about whether entrepreneurship can be taught. Um, and then there's feelings on both sides about that. Um, what advice do you give when you have young people come to you and want to think about entrepreneurship or want to become an EOM, what, what sort of advice do you give them? Well, as we said earlier, I'm a big believer in learning by doing. So I think that if you want to do anything, sure, there's some abstract knowledge you can bring to bear and there's some capability that can come from a classroom or a textbook. But ultimately, I think one has to get into the trenches and get one's uh, hands dirty trying it out. And I think one can't be afraid to fail. One has to just jump in there and throw oneself in harm's way. And, and I, when my students come and say they want to consider this or that career, the first thing I'm trying to do is get them an internship or a summer job. Get started. Right. Get in, get there. And, and also don't get started necessarily on your own. Right. You want to be near people who know what they're doing because for me to figure it out, from first principles could take a lifetime. But if I'm gonna hang around with someone else who knows how to do it, and I get the privilege of watching them. For sure. That's, yeah. supercharges my progress. Yeah, I, I would uh, just add on to your answer that I also find that, uh, that students today might benefit if they're able to do that by working with adults because so many students today hang out with other students almost exclusively. They don't get the same, and so just to make your to to build on what you were saying, they can then see adults who and be able to say, "Oh, she's really bright and attentive. I want to be more like her, or he's really like a bum. I don't want to be like that." And then it's hard for them to get that experience without getting some, you know, almost real world internship job experience, right? Absolutely. So uh, let's pretend we go to sleep tonight. And we wake up tomorrow, and magically, it's uh, September 25th, 2029, 10 years from now. And you say, Pete, you remember that day in my dining table at Lowell House, and we had that conversation? And I say, yeah. You say, well, that was 10 years, the best 10 years of my life, personally and professionally. I say, really? What happened? So I'm actually working on something now that, that, that we haven't talked about that is giving me a lot of, um, a lot of fun and, and intellectual stimulation. 
So I've just taken over a course with about 620 students, and it's the introductory economics course here at Harvard. And I'm, I'm having a fabulous time. I'm co-teaching it with Jason Furman, who is one of the chief policy advisors to uh, Obama. And um, I'm loving it. And I'm also loving being in Lowell House. So I think if, I, if you catch me exactly 10 years to the day, I think the most likely reason I will have had a great decade is because of the community that I'm joining here in Lowell House and, this also, and also this new course that I'm teaching. And is it your idea that you can uh, rethink how introductory economics is taught? Exactly, yeah. So precisely, we're not trying to replicate someone else's method. We, so what are some early observations you're having about that? So, so there's a lot of things that we're doing differently. One of the things we're doing differently is trying to create a lot of active learning in the classroom, even though it's 620 students. We're engaging with the students, we're asking questions. It's a, it's a very vocal classroom. There's a lot of give and take. They're doing things online before class. They're coming in, they're seeing their data that I'll project on the board. We're taking polls in class. So we're creating this interactive experience. We're also making the classroom experience something that's relevant for them. We're not talking about guns and butter. We're talking about the decisions that they make. We're selling things to them in class. We're having them participate in, in decisions that are kind of personally relevant. We're doing all sorts of things that show them how economics isn't some abstract idea that you learn from a textbook, take an exam on, and then never see again. We're showing them that economics is something they're going to hopefully use, deploy, benefit from their entire lives. And not just every now and then, every second of their lives. If you're thinking like an economist, it's as if you're putting on a totally different set of glasses and now suddenly everything's in focus. So, so we were very excited in helping them have a, a new lens through which to see the world. And we think this lens is very powerful for them. Now, it's not the only way to see the world and we hope they'll take off their economics classes sometimes, but we think that it's an incredible opportunity and privilege for us to introduce to these 620 students who are Harvard, typically Harvard first years and sophomores. Are they economics majors? Or? No, no, that's a beautiful thing. So some of them will be. Yes. So probably a third of them will end up in economics, but the other two thirds won't. And, we will, and this is gonna be Great. the tool set for them for life. And we think this is a really powerful tool set. We think it can be deployed. Talk about general skills. You know, wherever you go in life, understanding economic reasoning, that is powerful. That's gonna help you in a, in a hospital, it's gonna help you decide who to vote for, it's gonna help you buy a home, it's gonna help you choose a credit card, it's gonna help you choose a job, it's gonna help you make every decision that matters as you move forward in your life. And we wanna help them understand the generality of this tool, the personal relevance of this tool, we wanna make it fun, we're, having, we're laughing, we're enjoying it. Uh, so I'm having a great time with that class, working with Jason, I'm having a great time in Lowell House, so I'm actually pretty optimistic that you know, that I will report back to you. These, these have been uh, these have been ten great years. Of course, the other thing that I'm always excited about is my research. So we're always pushing, trying to push new ideas. Uh, we've got some some new ways of helping people 
reduce financial stress in their life. And we're rolling these pilots out right now, especially in the United Kingdom, where we've got a lot of great partners trying to get some experiments like this going in the U.S. So hopefully we'll get some of that stuff operating too. And maybe we'll, if we succeed, get millions of families into a happier financial place. That would be another thing I'd be, I'd be very happy about looking back. And of course, you know, family. So uh, if, if, uh, if, my, if my family's happy, I'm happy. Yeah, it's really a privilege, isn't it, to think about how to redefine the teaching of introduction to economics, really. And uh, when you say your team teaching it, are you actually both teaching at the same time or are you swapping classroom time? We're swapping. So, so it's sort of, I'll give a few lectures, he'll give yeah. a few lectures. Yeah. And are you using technology? Absolutely. So uh, we're using all sorts of technology. So one of the things we're doing is something that I deployed with you and your colleagues we're running experiments before many of the classes. So right. students will come to class having participated already in an experiment. And I think that's so powerful because, and it's online, yeah. because they're really confronting the issue personally. It's not an abstraction, it's not someone else's behavior, it's their behavior. Yeah. And it's, of course, not just their behavior, it's the person sitting next to them and, and all 600 of their behavior. So they understand this is about something very concrete, something they've been thinking about now for a few days because the experiment might have been run on a Saturday and now we're in class on a Monday and, and, it's, and it's relevant for them. And we're also using technology in class. So we're polling in class and we're using new iPads that we can write on. So the you write on the iPad, it projects right up onto the yeah, screen. Yeah, that's great. So, yeah. so we're trying to, trying to keep it invigorating by making technology maximally effective without using technology to the point where you, you eliminate the human experience. There's a, there's a way of going too far. Is there a textbook there? Well, I've, I've written that textbook. So uh, I've got a textbook co-authored with uh, Daron Asimoglu and John List, and we're using, using You're using that, that textbook, textbook right? But, but uh, I have um, arranged with my publisher to receive no royalties from any sales to my own students. And the royalties I would have received had been um, handed back to the students nice. in the form of a lower price. So nice. the last thing I want to do is force someone to buy a book that gives me a profit. That wouldn't be right. Okay, last question. It's a personal one. Uh, what's the one misconception that people have about you that you feel is a misunderstanding? <laughs> we can get Nina in here to help out if you want. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not I'm not sure whether there's the one misconception, but I do think that people look at me as an economist and unless they know me, put me into a box that is um, really mislabeled. 
because they think economist and suddenly a lot of things seem as though they must be true. So if you're an economist, that means you're sort of rational. That means um, you have your act together. There's a lot of things that go with being an economist. And if they actually knew me, they would realize that that there's so many pieces that don't fit well in the caricature economist box. So it's not, I don't think it's a, it's a big problem because once someone hangs out with me for an afternoon, they get it that, that I'm, um, I'm a mess. <laughs> uh, but sometimes I uh, meet someone and they quickly decide they know me because it says economist in front of my name. And it's more about people that I'm just meeting than it is about anyone who's, who's a friend. That's a great answer. David, I want to thank you for being with me on Positive Enterprise Value tonight. Thank you. It was a real pleasure.